Hello and welcome to Red Team with me, Colin Talbot. We'll be talking about government, public policy, public administration and services, and a few other things. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, this is Colin Talbot with another episode of Red Team. Uh, and I'm joined today by Jonathan Grant and Andy Westwoods. Um, I think probably best if you introduce yourself, guys. Uh, Andy, do you want to go first? Sure. Thanks, Colin. Good to see you. Uh, I'm Andy Westwood. I'm a professor of government practice at the University of Manchester. Thank you. And nice to see you both. I'm Jonathan Grant. I'm director of a small company called Different Angles that focuses on the social impact of universities and research. And Jonathan also used to have a big hand in running universities, I should say. Um, okay, you've, as I said at the beginning, you've both written a really interesting paper about the more or less complete absence of universities from the levelling up white paper and apparently from the government's agenda. So I thought if we could start by you outlining what your argument was in that. Who wants to go first? I'm happy to kick that off. Um, so, so I think um, what we do in this blog for the Bennett Institute is we explore the idea that universities could actually be the engines um, for delivering on the aspirations in the white paper around levelling up. But it's surprisingly how absent universities are in that document and in the government's broader strategy. Um, and we sort of discuss why that may be. Um, and it's broadly because the relationship between universities and the government is, is very poor um, at the moment. Um, but despite that, um, universities are actually doing a lot of stuff on the ground and we should recognise that. And perhaps it's time for universities to really demonstrate their autonomy and just get on and do it with or without government permission. Andy, do you want to add to that? Yeah, so so uh, obviously obviously I agree because we wrote the blog together uh, with, <laughs> with, with Jonathan's introduction. I think in um, just to sort of take a, a little bit of the detail uh, in, in the blog up, we we looked at, at something that we thought was really good about the government's uh, levelling up white paper, and that was this this six capitals framework that they outline in the beginning, which are which taken together, and they have to be taken together, are the sort of ingredients that lie behind successful places, but also in policy terms, potentially lie behind the kind of regeneration and recovery of places that have been less successful over you know, the last sort of 20 to 30 years, the sort of, you know, the, the, the kind of post-industrial towns, the coastal areas, the places very much at the heart of the kind of, you know, levelling up agenda and the Red Wall and, and so on and so forth. And, and th those six capitals, uh, if I list them, if I can remember them, are, are uh, human capital, intangible capital, physical capital, financial capital, social capital and institutional capital. So, you know, Jonathan and I were quite taken by by that framework because we thought, you know, first of all, it's a good framework, uh, and it recognises uh, the, the the different kind of capacities and capitals that, like I say, lie behind those sorts of places. But it also gives you a bit of a template for universities' roles in in kind of being part of those capitals. And, and when you go down them, some of them are really obvious and, and they sort of jump out straight away. So human capital, for, for example, uh, uh, graduate skills, uh, universities are making an obvious uh, contribution to that. And, uh, uh, and, and that's what they're funded to do. 
we should say that in the, in the government's definition, human also includes health, uh, the, the health of the workforce. And, and, and actually, universities make a big contribution to that because, of course, they train nurses and doctors and kind of health professionals. And, and, uh, and that matters, too. Uh, intangible capital basically covers innovation and R&D. And, and like human capital, that's another one that kind of you can obviously connect to what, what universities do, uh, their interest in research, their outputs in research, where the blue skies are kind of more applied. Um, so that, so that's, that's the other kind of obvious one. But then when you start sort of working down the others, you realise that actually universities are just as critical in, in, uh, in the other capitals too. So physical capital, infrastructure, buildings, kind of places where, uh, where businesses, people, communities uh, come together. Uh, you know, universities are big things that offer kind of lots of those spaces. Uh, financial capital, as, as we write in the blog, we, you know, universities are increasingly taking on a role where they're helping to either invest or guide investment or be part of investment vehicles to support kind of growth and innovation activity. Uh, social capital. You know, how, how, how communities come together, how they bond, how they bond with other communities, incredibly important in the way that kind of our, our, our societies and, and local places kind of do or don't work. And then institutional capital, this recognition that actually, you, you know, to, to, to really make a place tick, you've got to have a collection of institutions that have the capacity, capability and resource to come together and kind of, uh, uh, um, you know, essentially kind of make a place work. And, uh, and, and by any definition, uh, universities, I should include colleges in this, by the way, uh, are, uh, are, are crucial to that. They're, they're often kind of one of the biggest employers, but, but they, they also have capacity to help, whether it's local authorities, regional authorities, kind of specialist clusters of employee, uh, employers, um, uh, public services, you know, they're, they're deeply, deeply embedded in the institutional capital uh, of a place. So, you know, so, so taking that analysis, you kind of think, well, God, you know, there's so much more <laughs> to this that um, to this agenda that, that universities can offer. And, and then you go back to the kind of the policy prescriptions in the white paper and you kind of think, but uh, um, the, the policy agenda is kind of a little bit uh, um, it, it, a little bit unsure about how it takes advantage of universities in those places to sort of really fulfill all of those roles. And as Jonathan says, you know, actually then you get deep into the weeds of higher education policy and you realise that they're a bit uncomfortable about universities and, you know, they don't really like that range of powers <laughs> and influences that kind of university universities might have in particular places. So there's this real sort of ambiguity uh, and and as we would say, a bit of a missed opportunity because you know there aren't many other institutions that can span those capitals in the way that kind of uh, universities can. Yeah, but I would also add to that, Andy. It's, it's it's also the responsibility of the universities to step into that place um, or space. Um, and I think over the last generation, universities have sort of withdrawn from society, and you know, in that concept of institutional capital. Um, you know, when you think about a place, there are not many other civic type institutions um, around that can take on that leadership. And actually, I think they have a social responsibility to be moving in that space with or without government support. Um, and, and that, for me, is kind of what the definition of a, a sort of modern looking university should be. Yeah, absolutely. Can I, can I just explore that a bit more? Because I mean, it was certainly one of the debates I've heard in my time in universities has been uh, a tension between uh, localism, if you like, being 
rooted in your locality and particularly around the social and institutional capital things, um, actually putting university resources into developing those in the locality versus universities, particularly some of the middle rank ones who are, have aspirations to sort of global dominance um, and wanting to concentrate on their research excellence and projecting themselves internationally and, and so on and so forth. And I think that's been a, certainly a real tension in the debates amongst senior management in universities that I've come across. But then, I mean, I, you're, you're right, Colin, but then I think you've got to sort of get down to the almost the funding model um, of universities and especially those mid-ranking universities. And one of the main reasons they go after international students is because they can charge premium fees for international students to cover the deficit on their research funding, which is why they want to get up the lead tables. Um, I have long said this is really techie in the weeds type comment, but if we started paying full economic cost for research, you would change that dynamic and you'd go after international students because you want to have an international culture in your university rather than you see them as a way of filling a financial black hole. Um, so, you know, all, all of these things are deeply related. Um, but, you know, if the government is truly committed to a the civic university agenda, which it says it is, and is committed to um, levelling up, um, one of the most simple policy levers would actually be to um, commit to paying full economic costs tomorrow. Um, be dead easy to do, and you free up a whole lot of um, resources in universities where they can focus on things that matter um, to the government. Andy, you want to add to that? Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I think it's unlikely <laughs> that that's going to happen. But, but yeah. I think, you know, Jonathan's right. It's... Um, a lot of this comes down to, to, to the, both the reputational and funding incentives. Yeah. And for a long time, uh, um, the, you know, certainly uh, long enough to span all of our careers in, in higher education, the incentives and the funding haven't been sort of orientated towards place or levelling up or, you know, obviously that, you know, that language hasn't been around a long time, but uh, the civic agenda or, or, or whatever, uh, all, all the incentives and, and reputational kind of... Uh, uh, pushes are are away from local and civic and place and so so i think i think you know as you said earlier jonathan the the the, the will to change that has isn't just about those incentives it's about it's about the kind of strategy and confidence and history of of institutions yeah. and um you know their recognition that this kind of stuff matters even if even if government is over in the weeds uh making decisions about kind of you know how funding allocation works what the what the level of the fee is for the rest of the parliament who gets funded uh, uh you, you know whether that's full-time versus part-time or uh, uh the various discussions we're having about lifelong learning uh currently um it's so i think i think kind of it, it's it is partly uh it, it is this is partly a recognition that that those incentives are, aren't always pointing in a helpful direction but it's also a recognition that kind of, um, you know, universities have to have the strategic and institutional confidence to kind of recognise the importance of these roles and, yeah. and recognise the consequence, actually, of kind of these, these things not happening. So, you know, what that does contribute to is this, is this you know, as the levelling up white paper does recognise to its credit, you know, massive and sustained regional and local inequalities that have been growing over time 
that helps create and reinforce the kind of politics that we've got, which is, uh, um, um, you know, certainly since 2016, something that is in, in its entirety actually quite threatening to, to universities. So in, in, in many respects, it's in, it's in universities' kind of long-term interest to think about these things more deeply and how they act in these ways, because, yeah. um, you know, because it's partly a solution to kind of... Uh, uh, um, a five, six year sort of uh, political period where where things seem to have been stacked against them. Yeah, I, I wholly agree with that, Andy. But I, I think the, um, the, the the solution to this is that the universities have got to own the agenda and stop looking for government to set the direction of the agenda. And, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that universities can do today at limited cost, like buying locally. Um, you know, local procurement, socially responsible procurement policies, which you know, Manchester has put in place when I was at King's, um, we put in place. But it's not that widely um, sort of used and it is, you know, as much more value for money and sort of managerialism in procurement um, type processes. But universities spend lots of money. Um, so actually, why not spend that money in your local vicinity if you've got the opportunity to do that? And, you know, a thing I you know, constantly go on about and will continue to go on about until it's resolved is paying the living wage for your lowest paid staff, largely cleaners and um, security staff who are employed from your local community. Um, and if you actually pay them a living wage, then you'll have an impact on your local community. And those are two things which don't cost much and every university in the country could implement overnight and make a, make a difference, a real difference, a tangible difference to the places that they're located in. Can I put it to you then that um, universities being neglected in the levelling up white paper is probably a good thing um, in the sense that uh, central government in Westminster and Whitehall, particularly for England, uh, has seen all sorts of public institutions, even the ones they don't own, like universities, uh, in a very instrumental way as, as service delivery agencies and it, even local governments being reduced to that status by Whitehall. Um, and there's a real danger if they do start to focus on universities as a policy instrument that they will dictate from the centre what the strategy should be for universities um, and, and think that they can tell universities what they should be doing. Well, yeah, I slightly disagree with that, Colin, because first of all, they are dictating, um, you know, freedom of speech is a good example of that, where, right. um, you know, institutional autonomy of universities, quote unquote, is you know being eroded. Um, you know, so the idea that universities are autonomous institutions or um, more or less autonomous today than yesterday, I think is an interesting debate. And I think we've seen a centralisation of um, sort of policy levers um, around universities over you know, a period of time, not just this government, um, a period of time. But then um, I would say yes, if I had confidence that university leadership would step into that space and use the fact that they're not mentioned in the white paper for good. Um, right. And, and that, that to, to a degree, and you know, I sort of pick this up in, in, in um, the book I wrote last year, The New Power University, and, and to a degree, that, that's my biggest complaint, is I think universities have a massive contribution to make to this agenda, as Andy and myself articulate, um, but for whatever reasons, they're, they're nervous, they're, they're too internally focused um, to actually make that step, and, and that's, that's, that's the missing bit in this puzzle, is to have that self-confidence that actually universities are civic uni institutions that can make a real contribution to both 
local spaces and um, virtual spaces and international spaces. And is that self-confidence we need to actually bring back into the sector to deliver on those sort of issues? And, and, and if you like, um, take advantage of the fact that we have not been instrumentalized in leveling up white paper as a sector. Thanks. Yeah. Can, I, can I pick up on that point about spaces? I mean, because an obvious question is, are universities in the right places to play this sort of role in the UK? Uh, and are there areas where there's clearly a dearth of universities? I'm thinking, for example, in the Southwest Peninsula, um, you know, there's there's only one university at Exeter and, uh, and, and a couple on the coast. And that's, it. you know, this large chunk of that area with with nothing very much or East Anglia, where there's very, uh, very, very weak uh, university representation once you get past Cambridge. Um, so I just wonder, you know, are they in the right places to do what you're suggesting? Well, at, at one level, you know, the, the spread is pretty good. I mean, even in the places you uh, described, Colin, you know, so Falmouth, uh, Falmouth re recently, relatively recently created university, although an institution that's been there a long time is in kind of, you know, at the, uh, uh, at the end of Cornwall or nearly. Uh, and, and then, you know, in, in, um, in different parts of East Anglia, you've got kind of the growth of, of different types of institutions so you know Anglia Ruskin kind of spreads its way as does Essex actually uh, and uh, uh, and uh, and Dibswich uh, or Suffolk uh, have, have all sort of been created of course this isn't without its controversy you know it always opens up the more means worse both at an institutional level as well as the numbers of people going to higher education and we shouldn't forget actually because it's important that there, there's often a forgotten kind of uh, group of institutions that we used to call mixed economy institutions so institutions of further and higher education that largely sit and are largely governed by the further education system but that it particularly in those you know what we often call cold spot places are the kind of are playing that kind of anchor institute uh, anchor institution civic institution role in places like Grimsby South End uh, um, and so on uh, Cornwall College kind of another another example um, so you know Blackpool uh, there, there are many of them so so I think there's also a a need to kind of recognise the 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 role of those kinds of institutions in those places, uh, but also recognise that that dealing with these areas is, isn't without its its uh, uh, controversy in, in in politics and, and public policy so um it's uh, so i think i think kind of we do have quite a good coverage it, it, that's not to say that there aren't some places that need expanding or one or two institutions that or, or that could either be kind of uh, uh um incubated in in some particular places and um it's quite interesting. I, when I was in government, we we ran what was called a new university challenge, and the across the political spectrum, you had you had kind of MPs from uh, largely kind of small, medium sized towns, desperate for for growth in this area because they could see what it would achieve in uh, you know in that kind of institutional context uh, of those places. So so I think um, you know I sit I sit sort of firmly in in that kind of growth is good. Uh, area but uh, at the same time you know we need to recognize what kind of institutions already exist of different types within those places but I think I I, I want to kind of make a point about institutions more broadly I think because I think that you know where the leveling up white paper is, is quite good 
and, and actually Gove in the run-up to the levelling up white paper was also quite open about opening universities in places like Doncaster and uh, so you know, it's it's a it's a long white paper, as we know, three hundred and fifty pages, lot of lot of detail and analysis. Um, it sort of shies away, helpfully, from kind of some of the more cultural aspects of uh, of, of of things like higher education and um, uh, uh, you know other other uh, wedge issues or red meat issues, as as the government might describe them. But I think so, so. I think I think it's it's really clear in its commitment to improving productivity and uh, living standards in every in every part of the country, and it, and it kind of recognises the role of human capital and kind of other, all of those other capitals in it. So I think it, it, the levelling up white paper comes sort of firmly down on on that side of the argument. Higher education policy, whether it's free speech or or reducing numbers, minimum entry requirements. Uh, value for money is often coming down in a different place, which is which is saying th- th- this is a sector that isn't providing value for money. We've got ministers saying it would be okay in ten years' time if if less people are doing <laughs> uh, uh, full time university degrees, um, and 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 so sort of you know that tension between the stuff the Leveling Up White Paper talks about and the DFE talks about is is quite is quite important to kind of acknowledge and get inside. And I think in productivity terms, this this shows that actually the government is is, is actually pretty suspicious of lots of institutions in, in the country, both nationally and locally. It, it changes institutions locally all the time. You know, the churn in kind of uh, uh, subnational government government is sort of legendary, <laughs> uh, legendarily bad, actually, because you change arrangements every five minutes, uh, uh, abolish things and create new things all the time. But there is also a kind of, given institutions are so important to productivity across the board, uh, and that includes the rule of law, the BBC, Channel 4, the National Health Service, you know, institutions in in those terms, um, thinking about universities in, in that way. You know, this is a government that's actually pretty suspicious of institutions. It's suspicious of people who run them. <laughs> it's suspicious of, of what they do. It's suspicious of their agendas. And it's just as likely to try and undermine institutions, even though they're central to, to improving productivity and living standards, uh, which any economist will tell you. Uh, um, uh, and, and, and that's a, that's a kind of tension, a massive tension at the heart of this government's agenda. It, you know, it wants to improve living standards. It wants to improve productivity. And yet at the same time, it can't bring itself, it bring itself to trust the things that are most likely to deliver it. Do you want to add to that, Johnson? Uh, no, I, 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 I'm smiling to myself. You know, what's left if we destroy all these um, institutions? I, I make one sort of slightly tangential comment. Um, so much of my sort of research career has been in, in sort of um, health research. And one of the, I think, one of the most sort of successful um, interventions that's ever occurred in health research is the establishment of academic health science centres and then academic health science networks. Um, and the idea there is that, you know, the evidence tells us that if you are treated in a research intensive clinical setting, you tend to get better health outcomes than if you're not. So everybody in the country should have the opportunity, um, the theory goes, to be treated in a um, academic health science centre, which is also a research intense, um, intensive health um, provider. Um, and I, I've long thought, why aren't we thinking like that around education? Um, so, you know, and you see bits of that, but why, instead of thinking about institutions, why aren't we thinking about sort of um, academic education networks? So, you, so actually network East Anglia, 
um, where you, you know, you've got some of the world's greatest universities um, with further education colleges, with secondary schools, and have a sort of unified governance system around that. Now, I have to say, when you look at the literature on academic health science networks and centres, governance is the big issue because you know they're getting funding from separate places and all that sort of stuff. Um, but also the data says that it, governance works when you have those trusted community level relationships. Um, and, and so there's a chicken and egg going along there. And, and it's just the sort of thought experiment I keep on coming back to is um, as we have this debate about the role of universities in place, the critical role of further education, debates around um, sort of secondary education, surely there's a way of starting to bring that together, similar to what we did in health almost 30 years ago. Um, and, you know, I, I put that on the table and, you know, you can debate it, but just as an idea. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. Uh, the idea of networks of expertise is something I discussed with Rod Rhodes uh, a few weeks ago, going back to his um book from 1988 about beyond Westminster and Whitehall and one of the things that he was pointing out back then 35 years ago was we actually had quite strong policy networks in some areas uh, networks of knowledge and communities of interest um, and they were largely undermined um, during the Thatcher period uh, and to some extent afterwards um, so I think that's interesting. I would just add, by the way, on the space argument, I mean, there's a complete whole other debate about Northern Ireland, about the distribution of universities in Northern Ireland, which is we could spend an entire session on, <laughs> but is, I think, really important for, for what's going on there at the moment. I think we'll have to call, uh, call this to an end. It's been a really interesting discussion and we could have gone on for a couple of hours quite easily. So <laughs> thanks very much both for joining me. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you, Colin. Thanks, Colin. Thanks for listening. Jonathan Grant and Andy Westwood's paper that we talked about is available on the Bennett Institute at Cambridge University on their website. And Jonathan's book, The New Power University, The Social Purpose of Higher Education in the 21st Century, which was published last year, is available to all good bookstores.